You're listening to Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to those who lived in the Mesa Verde region hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. You may know that Mesa Verde National Park has been granted many special accolades and designations over the years. In 1906, it became the first national park in the state of Colorado, even before the National Park Service itself was created. It was also the first public land set aside to protect an ancestral and cultural heritage site. It led to the creation of the Antiquities Act, which was the first United States law to provide protection for any cultural or natural resource. In 1978, Mesa Verde National Park was named a UNESCO World Heritage Site, becoming one of the first in the United States, eventually placing it among some of the most special places in the world, such as Machu Picchu, the Pyramids at Giza, Stonehenge, and the Taj Mahal. And in 2021, Mesa Verde National Park was granted a new distinction. It became the 100th International Dark Sky Park. In this season of the podcast, we're going to talk not only about this designation and all of the sky watching opportunities within the Mesa Verde region, but also why this designation is so important to understanding and preserving the cultural heritage of the ancestral Pueblo people as well as those who trace their ancestry back to this region still today. A hundred years ago, just like 10,000 years ago, just like 10 million years ago, everywhere around the world was completely dark. For all of human history, our ancestors around the world could look up and see a dark sky swimming the stars and planets and galaxies. And until uh, just over a hundred years ago, every night everywhere in the world was dark. So with the introduction of electric lighting, starting in the 1880s, the sky has dimmed for each passing generation. Today, only 1% of Americans live in a place where they can see a natural night sky that is completely untouched by artificial light. This is Spencer Burke. My name is Spencer Burke. I'm a park ranger at Mesa Verde National Park. The first steps to becoming a dark sky park actually began a number of years prior to 2021, headed up by a team of various park rangers, volunteers, park partners, with each group tackling a different part of the process. And beginning in 2019, Spencer started to realize that the process of becoming an international dark sky park is no small feat. My first thought was, wow, this should be really easy because I live in the park. I go outside. I see the Milky Way pretty much every night. We have dark skies. This, yeah, this should be really easy. Um, But it turns out that the International Dark Sky Association wants a little bit more from you besides proof that you have dark skies. The dark sky park designation process is actually quite an involved process. Usually it takes one to three years to receive designation. And this designation and the process for achieving it is all put together and granted by an organization called the International Dark Sky Association, or the IDA. My name is Betty Mayafoot, and I am IDA's Director of Engagement. IDA is a... 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Tucson, Arizona, but we work globally to protect the night from light pollution. 
the Dark Sky Place program was started by the International Dark Sky Association, or the IDA. And they introduced this International Dark Places program back in 2001. And the goal was to encourage communities, parks, and protected areas around the world to preserve and protect dark sites through responsible lighting policies and public education. And the very first park to become a dark sky park was quite close to Mesa Verde, just across the border in Utah, Natural Bridges National Monument. And as we just heard, this process is quite involved. The work can be broken down into roughly three parts. One. First thing is sky quality readings. You get sky quality readings by using a little black box called uh, SQM, sky quality meter. The unihedron sky quality meter, which is basically a little device that you point up to the night sky, click a button, and then it gives you a number. And if your number is high enough, then it's dark enough. We have to have a certain number of those measurements throughout multiple places around the park in order to evaluate the darkness for the designation. And so we went all around the park, taking these measurements in places all around the park and averaged them all together. And it turns out, yes, we do have very dark skies. They were well over the minimum requirement of 21.2. But it was interesting to see the variation in them closer to the lodge where people have their hotel room lights on it was a lot brighter than, say, out in the middle of the forest, of course. In places where you had a view of cities in the distance, like Farmington, it's, you know, 60 miles away, but the sky glow coming off of neighboring communities is bright enough to bring your readings down quite a bit. So even places a long ways away influence the dark skies inside the national park. You know, the park boundary does not stop light from coming into the park. So the team proved that the park does, in fact, have dark skies. Now this opened the door to the next step. The next big piece, and this is probably the hardest part, was an exterior lighting assessment. They have to actually count and document every single light on the property and ensure that at time of application, at least two thirds of those lights are dark sky compliant with a plan to have them 100% compliant in the next 10 years. And that means listing and cataloging every single exterior light in the park. Now we're a national park, there's not a lot of buildings, there's a lot of land, not very many people live there. We're relatively, small park. We don't have lots of hotels and campgrounds. We just have one lodge and one campground. So I was a little bit surprised by how many lights there were in the park. We had a total of 964 exterior lights in the park. That's a lot. (laughs) And as it turns out, many of these lights were not quite dark sky friendly. And you might ask, what makes a light dark sky friendly? So, you know, basically what, what we're looking for in outdoor lighting is that it should be only on when you need it, only light the area that needs to be lit and not be brighter than it needs to be. Pretty simple. So ways to make uh, lighting dark sky friendly are to shield them. So the light points down at the ground where we need to see and not up into the sky and not out into our eyes. Another way to make lighting dark sky friendly is to use lights with a warmer temperature 
kind of lights with the on the more orange, red, yellow end of the spectrum, because those wavelengths of light actually don't travel as far, so they're not as polluting. Blue light, those those wavelengths travel the farthest, and so they're the most polluting. Um, so you know, if you've ever been to a dark sky party, they tell you to use the the red light on your headlamp or to put red cellophane over your flashlight. Um, that's because that lighting is way less polluting. And so the team revisited all 964 lights in the park. And found that only about half of them were compliant with dark sky standards. And so the next piece of the application was we had to come up with a plan of how to make 100% of our lights dark sky compliant. There's places where all it takes is to switch out a light bulb, make it a warmer temperature or a lower Kelvin. And in some places, the recommendation was simply to remove the light bulb entirely. Maybe we don't need a light on the visitor center, which has been closed for 10 years and no one ever goes to. Another relatively simple fix is to switch the light fixture so that it has a shield on it. Again, to light the ground where you need to see, not the sky. But... In Mesa Verde, a lot of our buildings are historic, and so switching light fixtures starts to run into historic preservation rules. So we started to work with the park's cultural resources department on how to update the lighting on historic buildings in a historically accurate way that also reduced our light pollution in the park. And when you spend a few weeks focused on light bulbs, you start to pay attention to them everywhere. Like, I'd never thought much about what kind of light bulbs I used. And now every time I go to a park or even a city, I notice their light bulbs. I notice if they're shielded. I go to Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a dark sky city. And I notice that all of the, the city lights along the roads and the highways, it still feels like a well-lit, safe city, but they are all shielded. The lights are way dimmer than in your average city. They're a warmer temperature, and it actually feels nicer. You can see the Milky Way over this city of 120,000 people, and it shows you know, what is, what's possible. It doesn't have to be a national park to see the Milky Way. You can still see it in a big city. Okay, so back to the plan. Remember, in order to become a dark sky park, Mesa Verde needed to get from 50% dark sky friendly exterior lighting to two-thirds. Fortunately, there was one particular location in the park which needed some help on this. The most lit place in the park was the lodge at Farview. And 42% of all the outdoor lighting in the park was at the lodge. So we selected that as a great spot to start switching out light bulbs to more dark sky friendly varieties. So the Mesa Verde Association, which is our nonprofit partner and runs the, the shop at the visitor center, bought and donated a bunch of dark sky friendly LED light bulbs. And over one day, two teams of volunteers, a couple park rangers changed out 150 light bulbs at the lodge to dark sky friendly ones. And that got us from 50% compliant to two thirds. And you know that was pretty amazing to me. Like it took us a few hours. All it took was changing a light bulb I know there's a joke in here about how many rangers it takes to change a light bulb, but you know, it took, uh, took a, few, a few volunteers and rangers a few hours to change out 150 light bulbs. And according to Spencer, this change was immediately noticeable. 
I used to live by the lodge uh, before we did this project. And when you stood next to the lodge, the sky was noticeably brighter than if you drove five minutes down the road and looked up. After we changed out these light bulbs, you could walk right outside of the lodge and see the Milky Way. And not only was it easy, not only did it fulfill our requirements to have two thirds dark sky friendly lighting, but that makes such a better national park experience to all the visitors who stay at the lodge. They don't have to go somewhere else to stargaze. They can just go right outside of their rooms now. You know, for me, I was kind of lost in the weeds of how complicated this was and all these hoops to jump through and it was frustrating. And then when we did that, it was like, oh, this actually boils down to something really easy. And so this is something that I always tell people when we're doing dark sky programs now, and they ask, what, what do I do? How can I help change your light bulbs? It's really easy. <laughs> um, and if you go onto the, the International Dark Sky Association's website, they have a really good guide to what kind of fixtures and light bulbs they recommend um, as dark sky friendly options. Once the team achieved that two-thirds compliance, they were ready for the final main portion of the process. Park staff also have to have many letters of community support showing that everyone in the area wants us to be a dark sky park because we don't want to just designate something that the community doesn't want. We want to see buy-in from the whole community and from the management and all the people who will be stewarding the environment for years to come. As we were talking about earlier, light pollution does not stop at the park boundary. Uh, so it was important for the IDA and to us to you know, have the support of our community in pursuing dark sky status for Mesa Verde. So we reached out to the city councils of all of our local communities, Macus and Dolores and Cortez, and they were all happy to supply letters of support for our dark sky project. So then we went ahead and submitted our application. A few, a few months later, we were approved and this came as a really pleasant surprise, but our application took long enough that we became the 100th international dark sky park. And so the IDA was excited to tout Mesa Verde as the 100th, this was a big milestone. And in the weeks and months after we became a park, more parks kept getting added, more communities. And there's a really high concentration of dark sky places here in the Four Corners region. This is one of the darkest remaining spots in the United States. And so there's parks and communities and sanctuaries all over this Four Corners region. And so dark sky tourism has become a bigger thing here in this area. While folks from all over the country and all over the world are drawn to these dark sky places, Spencer has noticed that the local communities have really developed a sense of pride along with this designation. Two different groups of people came up to me who were locals in town who were excited about this dark sky status and they wanted to know, how does Macus become a dark sky town? Uh, so you know, the, the excitement was really palpable. People were thrilled about this. And I think for a lot of locals, um, Mesa Verde for years has just kind of been that thing you look at in the distance where you went to the cliff dwellings on a field trip in school, but there wasn't a lot of ongoing personal connection to the place. 
I think this Dark Sky project has helped build a new kind of bridge to the local communities. Um, it's something that we that we're in together. We want to protect the the dark sky character of this whole region. Many public lands have been designated as international dark sky parks in the United States. And many of these places are first and foremost known for their landscape and natural features. Mesa Verde serves to protect the history of the ancestral Pueblo people and others who lived in the region. So what do dark skies have to do with that? The short answer, everything. Mesa Verde is a unique park in that we are preserving an ancestral landscape. People come to Mesa Verde to see the cliff dwellings, but they are also seeing basically the, the same landscape and ecosystem that the ancestral Pueblo people saw when they were here. You know, people can come look at Spruce Tree House and be surrounded by the same birds, the same trees and flowers that the people who lived there were. And you, know, you can go to Spruce Tree House and look up at the night sky, and it can be basically the same sky that the Pueblo people were seeing, the same stars and planets and Milky Way. I mean, that's, that's a magical transporting experience to a lot of people. And for the, the Pueblo people who lived here, there was no light pollution, of course. The night sky was a, you know, an incredibly important piece of their lives. The ancestral Pueblo people were farmers and like farmers all around the world, they used the passage of the stars and the planets in the night sky to help track the passage of time, to help track the, the seasons, to help figure out when to plant, when to hold feasts and ceremonies. The, the sky was the calendar and the clock for people in pre-modern times. And you know, that, that connection was much more important to people in the past than it is for us today. And I think it's easy for us to, to lose sight of that, that someone in the past you know, could set out from their home, travel in darkness, and know where they were going because they could navigate by the stars in a way that very few people alive today can. If we're not connected to the internet, we don't have our map app open. We don't know where we're going most of the time, and I'm, you know, myself included. Um, we've, we've lost that knowledge and that ability to read the world and the stars above us. Yeah, light pollution has actually been identified as a driver of cultural destruction in many places. Many, if not most, or all indigenous traditions around the world are based on the stars and people's abilities to observe and interpret the positions of the stars and other things in the night sky is of critical importance to daily life and cultural continuity. And the erasure of the night sky for these people acts to erase their cultural connection to the night sky. So it's, it's kind of a big deal <laughs> and is something that, you know, is not just for indigenous traditions, but I think humanity in general 
has always found their place in the night sky, right? It's always been the place where we have told our stories, where our gods have lived, how we have tracked our place and time in space and the universe and known when to harvest crops and known how to migrate along vast landscapes or seascapes. And I just, I always think, what, you know, what are we losing as people, as individuals and as a culture, as a species, when we lose that connection to the sky? Because again, all of our ancestors were looking up at that same sky, no matter where we were in the world, no matter when we lived, we were looking at the same sky, the same celestial bodies, we were telling stories about the patterns we saw in the stars, about the constellations, and passing those stories down from generation to generation. And we're losing all of that really fast. And I think we're losing a connection to ourselves, to what makes us human, uh, to our history, and as well as losing a connection to you know, what makes us part of something bigger. Everything that we have learned about this magnificent universe, as well as all of the stories that we've been telling about this universe above us for as far as human history goes back to the very beginning of, of human consciousness. And oh, that's, that's a lot to lose. That's a lot to risk losing. Um, that's one reason why I, for one, have become really passionate about this issue of light pollution, just spreading the awareness that we don't have to lose the sky. We don't have to lose our safety and security at night in exchange for losing the sky and our connection to it. Fortunately for anyone visiting a dark sky place, the designation process doesn't really end the day that it's earned. The park also has to do regular outreach events about light pollution in dark skies in order to educate the community and show them the true value of the dark sky resource that they have above the park. Because of this mandate, and because of the deep cultural connection between Mesa Verde and the sky, you will find Mesa Verde National Park continuing to provide interpretation about its dark skies and the connection that the ancestral Pueblo people, their descendants, and all affiliated tribal groups have to it for years to come. And so, where might one go to view dark skies at Mesa Verde? So, you know, Mesa Verde is a unique park in that a lot of our sites are sacred ancestral sites that we don't want people going into at night, that we want to protect and preserve. So, a lot of the sites at Mesa Verde are not open at night. A lot of the trails at Mesa Verde um, close at night and the backcountry is always closed to everyone even the park rangers of mesa verde most of the time um but there are some really good places to go to mesa verde at night and to start with the obvious the campground is a great place to see the, the night sky there are not very many lights in the campground and the lights that are there are currently in the process of being upgraded over the next few years to be more dark sky friendly. And the campground also sits in a valley which blocks you from a lot of the light pollution of neighboring communities. 
Then, of course, the lodge has already undergone the lighting upgrades. Stepping right outside of the lodge rooms is a good place to see the dark skies. And then along the road going into Mesa Verde, the main road in and out of the park is always open. And the overlooks along that road, you can park, get out of your car, and enjoy varying views of the night sky. Park Point, which is the highest point in the park, historically has been closed at night. Uh, we have been working with the park administration to try to develop Park Point as a place for stargazing. A lot of people you know, want, to, want to see the iconic views of Mesa Verde under the night sky. And of course, the iconic views of Mesa Verde are the ancestral sites. And so the, the one spot where you can currently go and see a cliff dwelling at night is Spruce Tree House by the park headquarters. If you do journey to Mesa Verde to view the dark skies, always remember that you are visiting sacred lands. These are places that the descendants still identify as the living homes of their ancestors, and they ask that you please visit with respect. Throughout the rest of this season of the podcast, we'll be hearing more about the deep connections that ancestral people had to the skies in the Mesa Verde region, how they observed the movement of the sun throughout the seasons, how they observed the faces of the moon throughout the months, and how they tracked the passage of the stars throughout the year. And we'll also hear about how these traditions live on today in the communities and cultures that trace their heritage and homelands back to the vast expanses of the Mesa Verde region. The um, night sky in the universe is also tied to our overall way of life as Navajo people. I guess you could say we observe the night sky, um, watching it like a calendar, and we also observe the night sky to remind us of different teachings um, and different knowledge that we have as a group of people. We still carry on with all the observances, all the ceremonies that were done within Mesa Verde. We still are the same people. The only thing that has really changed was time itself and the clothes that we wear on our backs. Those are the only two things that has changed. Otherwise, we're the same people. We carry this understanding and perspective going on uh, of who we are as a people. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Association. This season is made possible through a grant from Colorado Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and mixed by Ken Petrosky. Our theme music is by David Morella. For more information about the International Dark Sky Association, including resources for what you can do to make your home and community more dark sky friendly, visit darksky.org. And follow IDA on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date on dark sky designations around the world, as well as events throughout the year. For more information about the dark skies at Mesa Verde National Park, visit nps.gov forward slash M-E-V-E. And follow Mesa Verde National Park on Facebook and Instagram to see some of the incredible dark sky photos that have been made during the designation process. 
You can also find links to all of those pages on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. Special thanks to Ravis Henry, Octavius Sayatua, and Curtis Quam for your wisdom and insights in the production of this episode. And thank you to Ranger Spencer Burke and Betty Maya Foote for sharing your stories with us. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to stay up to date when new episodes release. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Well, to me, the night sky is just like the ultimate place of peace and solace. But it's also the ultimate place of wonder and insecurity in a way, because I feel like our whole society is built upon surrounding ourselves with people who we agree with and convincing ourselves that we're right about what we're right about and that we know the answers to these questions and that there are things that are certain. But when Ever I'm under the night sky with my camera, I just fully realize that we don't know anything at all. And it's just that feeling of not having stable footing to stand on and all of a sudden being out in the middle of the ocean with no raft that pulls you back to the reality of the wonder of the universe that we live in. I think that's just such an important feeling and it's humbling. And it's something that makes me really appreciate all the other beings that I get to share this world with.